Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Senior news editor Andrew Goudsward is here to talk about a resolution that's going through the Student Association Senate today, and the resolution is calling for the university to divest from companies that supporters of the resolution say are contributing to the oppression of Palestinians. The meeting for this resolution is coming up tonight, and what has kind of the student reaction been up to this point? It's been pretty similar to what we saw last year. Both sides are, again, mobilizing. Both sides are anticipating another kind of contentious meeting that's been moved again to Funger Hall to accommodate the larger crowd that's expected. And kind of the arguments that we've been hearing are very similar. The opposition side, it's, you know, this isn't the way to address this. It's This is divisive. This is kind of an attack on Israel. And on the other side, it's just, you know, this is how we can finally get the university to acknowledge that this struggles that we face and are being faced in in places that we've come from, as well as making sure that the university's investments, which are obviously a key part of, you know, its well-being, are reflective of the values that the university says it has. I mean, they say that, you know, having the university making money off these companies that are contributing allegedly to these abuses is just another way that these students are being hurt and they shouldn't be paying money to a university that, that is doing that. And if this resolution actually does pass, does that actually mean anything? Well, then it goes to the administration, and it would be up to them to decide what they want to do with it. They have traditionally been very hesitant to do anything with their investment portfolio, but certainly if it does pass, you would expect that the administration would be under a significant amount of pressure not to act on it. And... You were actually at the resolution when it was going through the Senate last year, and it's the same kind of resolution. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, absolutely. As you might know, Student Association Senate meetings are normally held in a small room in the Marvin Center, where if there's anyone who's not a senator present there, it's usually only a couple of other people in the public gallery. Um, But this meeting was actually because there was such anticipation and people knew going in that this was going to be such a big uh, showdown, it was moved to a lecture hall in Fungar hall where there were several hundred people there. I mean, the room was completely packed and there were a number of supporters and opponents of the resolution who immediately jumped up to make speeches of public comment. Um, Public comment, which normally lasts only a couple of minutes, went on for three hours um, and there were a series of very passionate speeches from people on both sides of of the issue and became really quite a uh, emotional and intense night. Why was this such an anticipated resolution? What were supporters and opponents saying about the resolution and why was it so controversial? Well, it's no secret that just in general, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a controversial issue in itself. And as opposed to, you know, an an internal essay matter or a university-specific matter that the Student Association normally deals with, this was from the get-go more about something larger about this global issue and about the relationship between Israeli and Palestinian students um, on this campus. And so even before the resolution came up for a vote um, on the floor of the Senate, people were already aware of it. Opinions were already spreading. Um, There were already movements on both sides to get people to go to committee meetings um, to hear about the resolution and to to try to pose it from moving forward, which is pretty much unheard of um, in the Student Association Senate. Normally, no one really attends committee meetings outside um, senators who are there and, and organizations who maybe have a special interest in being there. But this, from the beginning, was different. There was enormous anticipation. And in terms of the arguments for the people who were supporting the resolution, it was very much about the university 
university acknowledging that Palestinians and Palestinian students face, you know, oppression and face hardships from their situation and from particularly these companies. So if the university was to divest from these companies and its endowment, it would be a, a message to these students that we're listening to you, that we understand that the plight that you're facing is real and that we want to do something to rectify that. And for the people who are against it, it was about, you know, it was viewed as a very one-sided resolution where Jewish student organizations and pro-Israel student organizations were not consulted about what was going to be in the resolution. Um, it was very much a, kind of an implicit attack on Israel, be, they felt, because it was, you know, about Palestinian oppression, which they felt these companies were basically just working for Israel. So it became kind of a proxy way to attack Israel without actually mentioning Israel in the resolution. Um, and they felt that the instances that were cited in the resolution from the UN and from others were from places that were kind of anti, had an anti-Israel bias and that the facts that were not really representative of what was actually taking place on the ground. And so on one side, you had people saying that, you know, we need this type of resolution to acknowledge our suffering and to kind of do something to stop it. And on the other side, it was, this is a very divisive resolution. This is not the way to go about having this conversation on campus. And so, you know, it should be defeated. What happened after this was over? It failed to pass the Senate um, by one vote, but it didn't really go away for the rest of the year, and obviously it's popped back up again. So it was a close vote, 15 to 14, after several hours of, of speeches on both sides and a tense conversation. And then, yeah, the resolution, I mean, it, it faded away for it from a time, but there was sort of a, a lasting impact from the resolution and, and student government that lasted for quite some time. So it came up again when the Senate decided to kick out Joe Vogel, who was a leader of a movement called GW Together, which was basically the main kind of collection of student organizations that came together to oppose the resolution back last spring. And then he had missed some committee meetings in the Student Life Committee throughout the academic year. And then there was an effort to kick him out of the Senate, which ultimately proved successful for missing those meetings. And then at the time, Joe Vogel claimed that this was really about you know this resolution and about his support for Israel and his efforts to, to defeat that resolution last year. And then of course, you know, anti-Semitism has become another huge conversation on campus recently with the controversy around Brady Forrest, who had ran for executive vice president and called for a boycott of a multicultural event um, in 2014 because it was co-sponsored by Jewish student organizations who Forrest claimed had supported an Israeli invasion of Gaza back in 2014. So the kind of last impact that this has had has continued well into this year, and there continues to be this kind of, you know, acrimony between pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian student organizations throughout this year on campus. On kind of a more national scale, how has the boycott divestment sanctions movement played out? There's actually national organizations involved on, on both sides of this issue. There's another national movement that I mentioned, Boycott Divestment Sanction, which is kind of aligned with Palestinian and Palestinian uh, supporting organizations on campuses all across the country. They view college campuses as a place where they can kind of make progress in acknowledging that there is oppression of Palestinians um, and, and Palestinian students on campuses across the country. And so they have launched these kind of similar resolutions in student senates across the country. And some of them have been successful, some of them haven't, um, but the goal is kind of and getting you know universities and, and campuses to acknowledge the, the struggles that they face. And then on the other side, there are a bunch of pro-Israel Jewish national organizations who have mobilized to kind of stop this effort. And a lot of that is, is based on the fact that there have 
been, you know, they claim anti-Semitic elements in the BDS movement, um, that a lot of this is about really attacking Israel and attacking Jewish students and not necessarily a constructive way to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, you know, beyond this one GW issue that they're going to be debating in the Senate tonight is really the two larger movements that are happening across the country on campuses, and they're kind of both, you know, attacking one another and trying to undermine each other in a lot of different ways, and it's become kind of a proxy battle in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Have there actually been any BDS movements that have been successful? No university has announced that they have divested from these companies that allegedly are contributing to Palestinian suffering. A number of student association assemblies and senates have passed resolutions calling on the universities to do that, but no administration has actually said that they're going to do that and in all likelihood would face enormous opposition given the kind of attention to this nationally if they were actually to announce that they were going to divest. And how has the university responded at all to this issue and saying that they're either for or against the resolution? No, the university has not weighed in on this one way or the other, which is not unusual before, you know, student association resolutions are passed. They rarely weigh in to just kind of allow the process to take place. But a former president of the university, Stephen Joel Trachtenberg, a longtime president, um, wrote an op-ed for the hatchet last week in which he called for the Senate to reject this resolution, saying that it was divisive and, and not the best way to go about this. Thanks for talking to us about this issue and uh, keep us posted on how the resolution turns out. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm here with Sarah Roach, one of our news reporters, who's here to tell us what the administration plans to do following a racist Snapchat incident. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Leah. It's been a couple of months. Can you just give us a quick refresher of what happened with the Snapchat incident? About two months ago, there was a racist Snapchat that was circulating around social media involving three sorority women in the Alpha Phi sorority. It caused a lot of backlash from students who said that it goes beyond just one racist incident and it's something that is representative of a larger issue of diversity inclusion. So this led the university to outline this plan and 45 days later they have a list of action items that are following up on what University President Thomas Vaughn promised to do. What is the administration planning to do? What have they said following this incident? Some of the tasks that University President Thomas Vaughn wanted to do was establish bias incident reports reporting mandatory diversity training for incoming freshmen at their colonial inauguration, which is their orientation session, mandate that university staffers and students participate in diversity training as well. University staffers have worked alongside students in six teams so that students can give feedback to staffers and they can outline these plans so that these nine steps that the president brought about are actually put into place. Walk me through what training is going to look like for incoming freshmen. Is this something that they're going to start right away? or kind of work towards? For incoming freshmen this fall, they will be participating in different training at Colonial Inauguration. They will have online diversity training sessions along with discussions with each other and speakers who will talk about diversity and inclusion and what that looks like before they actually start in the fall. The university will then evaluate what the students were doing throughout CI, and they'll get feedback from that, and they'll reevaluate if that's something that they can do the following year and if that's something viable for incoming freshmen. 
So it's kind of like a pilot program for this type of training to see if this is something the university will continue to do with incoming freshmen. And what about bias incident reporting? What is that going to entail? Bias incident reporting will include students being able to go online. There'll be an online tool provided and the university has actually partnered with a provider called Ethics Point where students will be able to submit any form of discrimination or bias and it'll be completely anonymous. And these tips and this feedback will be evaluated by whoever is soliciting the responses um, from students and then they'll be asked to review the reports and there hasn't been anything specifically as to what will happen with those reports and how they will respond to those reports but this is a tool that the university has come up with so that they are able to solicit feedback from students about this type of discrimination. And following this event, students were asking the university to hire a person of color for the dean of the student experience. How did the university respond to that demand? The search committee for a dean of the student experience went through unconscious bias training and they are still in the process of finding someone who will fill that position. And this won't necessarily be a person of color, but someone who has experience and background in diversity and inclusion. How has the university been soliciting student responses? And also, how are they building these student committees? Committees were soliciting feedback from students so that they were able to understand what students wanted. Students felt that it was important that they were part of that that decision-making process as well. Looking more generally, what was the overall response from different student leaders? Different student leaders had a few mixed responses. Some students said that it was very beneficial for them to give this feedback to administrators because they felt that they actually had a voice in what was happening with these action items. There were also some students that were saying that even though they were part of these committees and they were part of the decision-making process, administrators didn't necessarily listen to them. They said that They really wanted some of these action items to take place, but it wasn't necessarily implemented in the way that they wanted to. What were the major concerns behind just doing this type of training at CI or only doing online trainings? One of the major concerns with doing online diversity training at CI is that there was no human interaction with that and students wouldn't necessarily be interacting with one another to understand what diversity and inclusion means and they'd just be doing this online course. And another concern on top of that is that when they get onto campus in the fall that they hadn't really internalized what diversity inclusion really meant and that training may have just gone right through their head during CI because it was months before they stepped on campus. So unless they were going to be a student leader right away and had that mandatory diversity training laid out for them, then that wasn't something that was really productive for colonial inauguration. Even with these concerns, are there any student leaders who think this is a step in the right direction or working towards something that could eventually pan out? Yeah, students said that this will be an ongoing thing. It it doesn't end right when the action plan comes out so that people can read it. Committees will still be meeting, they'll still be working with one another so that they can lay out something that will sustain each plan and make sure that each plan is being held accountable and they are actually being implemented. I talked with Abiola Goro, the president of GW's chapter of the NAACP, and here's what she had to say. They said that they're going to increase on the plan that they reached, so they're going to increase um, encouraging students to go to the MSSC trainings, uh, which honestly really aren't that productive necessarily either. So um, it just it feels like they really didn't do much. And I know when I tried reaching out to the administration to check up, you know, especially after they were like, yeah, we want you guys involved, we want you guys involved. When I emailed them about what was going on, none of them responded to my emails. Um, And so, and when I saw them at events, they didn't really want to talk talk about it, they didn't have time. 
So I'm just I'm disappointed, to be totally honest. Ashley Lee, who is the Student Association president-elect, said in response to the Alpha Phi incident, like, this plan is going to ensure that diversity training is carried out and not something that is just like a response to the Alpha Phi incident. It's something that will ensure that it won't happen again and that it's brought to the attention of students who maybe weren't even aware that the Alpha Phi incident happened and they just have that background and that knowledge ingrained in them about diversity and inclusion and what that really means. Thanks for coming on this week, Sarah, and telling us about this action plan. Be sure to keep us updated. Thanks for having me on, Leah. Barbara Alperts, the contributing sports editor, is here this week to give us an update about some new leadership for the athletic department. Barbara, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to be on. The The university announced a new athletic director this week. Can you tell us a little bit more about who she is and what she's going to be bringing to the athletic department? Last week, uh, University President Thomas LeBlanc announced that he asked Tanya Vogel to permanently take the athletic director position. She was serving as the interim athletic director since January after Patrick Nero, who was the former athletic director, resigned in December. So yeah, Tanya has been a part of the GW athletic program for quite a while. She actually got her undergraduate degree here um, and played four years of soccer. Tell me a little bit more about her years with the athletic department before she got into this position. So you said she played soccer at well as an undergraduate, right? Yeah, so Tanya played four years of soccer at GW as an undergraduate. She was part of the 1996 team that got a bid to the NCAA tournament. She's a Hall of Famer, and she took a coaching position in 2000, and she stayed there uh, for 11 years. And then she left to do a stint at Northern Arizona University in an administrative role as Senior Associate Athletic Director, um, and came back to GW in 2015 to assume that same role, and she also worked as a Deputy Title IX Officer for the uh, department. So she's really been a part of this department since the beginning of her time here at GW. Uh, She said that's one thing that will make her a better leader of the department is understanding how student athletes feel, what coaches are going through, and understanding other administrators and what their jobs are because she's done all of those things before. Is there anything else that is kind of unique about her as the athletic director at GW? So she's the first female athletic director since the men's and women's athletic departments merged in 1988. have only been three athletic directors before her since then. She's also one of two female athletic directors in the Atlantic 10 Conference. And in the last couple of years, the athletic department has been under some criticism for the departure of Mike Lonergan, the former men's basketball coach, and the equal employment opportunity lawsuit when a female employee claimed she was paid $40,000 less than a male co-worker. So did Tanya Vogel have anything in response to that? At the press conference last week, uh, the Hatchet asked Vogel how she would prevent issues like those that you just mentioned, and this is how she responded. Every single day, our coaches and staff get up to provide an outstanding experience for our students. And so while we are not perfect, we will continue to provide mechanisms for feedback, education, programming, We'll make sure that we are hiring and retaining the right individuals who understand that their job is as educator. Um, and I'll tell you, as I look around this room, it's filled up quite a bit. Uh, I am impressed by the work of the individuals in this room. I can tell you that every single day we get up to make sure that the people in the back of the room, I don't know why the students are standing, except they have way more energy than my staff. <laughs> um, 
But we get up every single day to ensure that they have an outstanding experience, and we'll continue to do that. So there's going to be some change in the leadership structure of the athletic department because Tony Vogel is going to be reporting to someone new. Can you tell us how that works exactly? So she'll be reporting to University President Thomas LeBlanc. Usually in previous years, the athletic director has reported to the university provost, but this year they're going to be changing that up and she'll be reporting directly to LeBlanc. Uh, They didn't really give too much of a reason why that was happening. Uh, We do know it's not highly unusual for universities to have their athletic directors reporting to the president, but it is something that's new here at GW. At the press conference that you went to, how did Vogel kind of describe her leadership style? So Vogel basically said that she wants to be accessible to her staff and she wants to lead with empathy. She really acknowledged the fact that the people that she's been working with these last three months have really helped her kind of get her footing in the department and have really helped her um, make the transition easier. So she's definitely someone who she said she wants to have like a, a very accessible relationship with her staff. Did she have anything specific in mind for her future with GW? So Tanya said that she really wants to be the director of athletics for a long time here at the university and continue to build up the program. Well, I guess we'll be hearing from her for a long time then. Thanks, Barbara, for talking to us about our new athletic director. Thanks for having me. I'm here with Matt, who's here to tell us about some student engineers who are working to design their own car. Hi, Leah. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I love this story. How did these students become involved in this project? So a group of 15 to 20 student engineers are building a car from scratch for the Society of Automotive Engineers Baja competition, in which this car that they built is going to be judged on multiple platforms, and they're in competition with universities from all around the world. There are universities from India, Brazil, and Mexico also competing in this competition in Maryland, which is happening um, April 19th through the 22nd. And since this competition isn't in D.C., how are they getting the car there? So I interviewed Connor Gillespie and Andrew Edzenga, who are the two co-captains of the Baja team at GW. They told me that they have to take apart the car and reassemble it back in Maryland. So I feel like that's another part of the challenge is like (laughs) hoping that it all comes back together. Tell me about the car. What does it look like? What kinds of materials are they using? So yeah, it kind of looks like a dune buggy, but um, it's all blue and it has the GW little insignia on it. And when I asked them, you know, uh, what what are you naming this thing in like a sort of grease lightning sort of fashion, obviously, um, they were just like, yeah, we, we've been asked that like a lot. And so we just thought it was it looked blue, so they started calling it Baby Blue. But mm, simple. But mm. the ingenuity comes from the you know modifications that they've made to make this a very aerodynamic vehicle. So it's kind of cool. And are they testing it themselves? Are they the actual drivers for this project? So they've been doing trial runs at the Virginia Science and Technology Campus, and I guess because it's more of a rocky terrain, you can't really test drive. In the foggy bottom, you know. Probably not. Probably the traffic, not. Yeah. It would be, yeah. But um, they've done, since there's an obstacle, like there's a rocky terrain that they're being judged on, that they're racing the car on at the competition, they had to match the kind of environment. And I think the Virginia campus was a good place for them to do that. So this is Connor Gillespie talking about his experience test driving the vehicle on the Virginia campus. I actually had quite an experience the other day. I actually went off a jump and did a complete front flip in it. And 
got shaken around a little bit, but it was a lot of fun, and I came out fine. So I trust the car. It's been through some tests, and I put blood, sweat, and tears into it. So... At the competition, what are the judges looking for? So there are a bunch of different things that students are judged on with this vehicle. So there are design presentations as well as business presentations in which you're presenting your car to a group of experts in the automotive industry. They basically have to sell the car as if they were presenting it to the mass market. And so when they participated in the competition in 2016... They almost had, like, no clue they were getting into such a thorough examination of their car and were really ill-prepared for that front of the presentation. There's also an obstacle course in which you're going through tight turns and driving past cones, so it has to be kind of able to maneuver that stuff. There is also a suspension test where you're going over, like, different logs and rocky hills. And the main event is a four-hour endurance race. So there's a a two-and-a-half-mile lap that's been designed by industry experts. So Connor told me that basically they are building this course in order to break your car. This is intense. intense. Yeah. Yeah. And and on top of an engineering course load, these students are like working really hard during these next past few days to like just solidify their progress on this car. Do these students like, is this what they want to do? You know, are they going to be the next like Elon Musk? They're both uh, mechanical engineers, but out of the 15 to 20 students, they have some civil engineers and some electrical engineers. So it may not be what they want to do in the future, but it is definitely a valuable task when you're taking into account their curriculum and the skills in which you're building a car. Well, thank you so much for coming on this week and telling us about these student engineers. I'm excited to hear what happens to the competition. Me too. Yeah. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features contributing culture editor Matt Dimes. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell, and managing editor Tyler Loveless. And music is produced by Olk Studios. Special thanks to Barbara Alberts, Andrew Goudsward, and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.